Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. It is the third Monday of the month, and that can only mean one thing, film literature and the New World Order. And today we're going to be talking about that wonderful, chirpy, happy-go-lucky, feel-good, warm-and-fuzzy animated film from Studio Ghibli, Great. Oh, sorry. Never mind. Uh, cancel all that. It's going to be a very depressing talk, and uh, you're going to cry. In fact, if you're not already crying from just having watched this film, you should probably be looking in a mirror and contemplating why you're, you are a psychopath who doesn't mind watching children die in a horrible, disgusting manner. So. With that as preamble, and I really do hope that you've watched this movie before listening to this conversation, because honestly, you're going to get a lot more out of it if you've seen the movie. But uh, let's get into this conversation talking about Grave of the Fireflies, the 1988 anime film directed by Isao Takahata. And in order to do that, we have live here in Okayama, Brock West of In Studio. Yay. Nice. Studio. Yeah. Well, as you can tell from the unbelievable rumbling in the background, no, we're out in, uh, out and about in Western Japan. But hopefully, this will not sound too bad. But Brock, thank you once again for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me back. It's great to be back in Western Japan. In the, uh, I, I put a tweet out last night in the uh, slightly typhoony climes of Western Japan, and uh, but it seems to be a much uh, to do about nothing, thank thankfully. But um, yeah, it's great to be back. Great to see you again. Um, you know, we've. Uh, We've been in, in Japan for a couple of weeks now and having a great time as we always do here. And uh, especially this weekend, we've uh, had a couple of days together, spent some time together. Uh, some, one night is a little bit more blurry than the other day for some reason. Uh, the first yeah. night we decided to go out on the town with your friends and uh, yesterday we had a lovely day spending some time with your son playing in the park, etc. So uh, yeah, it's been really wonderful and uh, so yeah. But unfortunately, uh, yeah. as you said, now oh, let's, bring everyone yeah, down. Yeah, let's bring everyone down to uh, this level. but. Um, you asked me a few months ago, you know, you were thinking of doing this uh, film which is in the world order about, about Grave of the Fireflies, and I, I was happy to put my hand up for it, but the next day I was kind of like, oh man, <laughs> I, I know what to expect with this now, yeah, so uh, yeah. yeah, anyway. It, it's okay, a, so you'd seen the film already at I, that point, right? I had, I had already, yeah. Uh, I'm a huge anime, anime, whatever, whichever way you want to say it, uh, fan. Um, you know, from back in my teenage years, uh, you know, the, t the typical Pokemon and Dragon Ball Z, but then as you get a little bit older, I just kept watching it and, um, and then, yeah, I, I stumbled across this Grave of the Fireflies movie, not because I knew anything about Studio Ghibli um, at the time, but I was listening to a, a band uh, called Raised by Swans. Uh, I think they're from Newfoundland. And their cover of their, one of their albums uh, was the picture of the two main protagonists. And, and I didn't think of, any, of it at the time. Um, anyway, a couple of years go by and then I watched this movie and then sure enough there was that same scene. So I kind of had already had an idea of what to expect. And the funny thing is the, the tone of that album too is very, very slow and very moody and very depressing as well. So it kind of, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe yeah. they, they're the obviously taking some kind of... Uh, uh, night out of the book of that one, so yeah. All right. So when was the first time you watched it? I would say maybe six or seven years ago. Right. Yeah. Okay. And um, what was your first impression? Well, uh, sadness, really. I mean, just and it was the first kind of the first 
time I'd seen a Studio Ghibli movie, so actually, I tell a lot, I mean, the, the first impression I got from it was the, the beauty of the animation. I've never experienced or seen animation quite like it, and I've never, and then to find out that it, come, it was made in 1988, you know, that really blew my mind, but then obviously as you get more and more into the movie, the tone, you, you quickly forget about the, uh, the beauty, the gorgeous animation, and you really get sucked in and you start to invest a lot in the, in the two main characters, so um, yeah, so I would say, Going at the start of the movie, I was blown away by the animation, and at the end, I yeah, wanted to cry softly and deeply into a cushion or a yeah, pillow yeah, or something. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I okay. So I'll admit, I saw this I think the first time about ten years ago, and I um, I watched it at a time when I was just watching every movie I could get my hands on, and I uh, I had read about this or I'd heard about it as you know one of the best anime movies. So I'm like, okay, well, let's give it a shot. And so I didn't really know what to expect. Mm. And I will admit, I am someone who never, ever cries at movies. And I cried my eyes out the first time I saw this. It was so unrelentingly sad. Yeah. Uh, the, and the movie. The that's, ending. Oh. That's the strange thing. I mean, for people who haven't seen it, and I hope everyone who is listening to this will have seen it by now or will watch it after they hear this, but um, it's amazing that such an emotional uh, force can come out from an anime from an animation, you know, normally people are so, you know, are so associate animation with cartoony and things like that that can't really draw out any human emotion, but this one really, really does that quite, quite effectively. It really does, and in fact that brings up a point that the, uh, the author of the book that this was based on, it's a semi-autobiographical novel by Akiyuki Nosaka, who I guess his sister really did die, but he survived obviously, so they changed that ending. But um, he, he, so he wrote his uh, novel in 1967, and over the years he had many, many offers to make it into a movie, and he didn't go for any of them. But then eventually, in, around in the 80s, Studio Ghibli approached with the idea to make an anime, and he thought about it. And after seeing the storyboards and, and seeing what they were doing with the idea, he thought, this is the only way to do this. You couldn't do it as a live action film, because it would be too real, with the, the sort of the children yeah. dying kind of thing, but also because you would never get children to act as convincingly as you could animate them in this movie, right? right because yeah. this, I mean, you're right. Uh, the, the attention to detail, and it's not just the, not just the drawing itself, but the, the sort of the movements, the actions, the little details, the things that happen that are tiny little things but when they're playing in the bathtub with the washcloth and it you know bubbles up and that kind of thing it's just those tiny little things that make it very realistic uh, to the point where you I mean once yeah once you get over the initial idea that most westerners would have oh it's just you know it's a cartoon for kids once you get over that and you start to get into it it really completely sucks you into that world yeah um, to the point where you really feel like you're experiencing it yeah, yeah exactly. and so I yeah I agree completely with Nosaka that this is the only way you could do this and having said that there have been two live-action attempts to make this film one was in 2005 I guess it was a TV drama and then in 2008 there was I think a theatrical um, production Did you say any of I didn't I, I have the, uh, the, the 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 theatrical version and I've only skimmed through it only just to see how they treated some of the dramatic, like the main dramatic scenes, you know, the death of Setsuko and things like that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, 
and from what I've seen, it's it really is like you can't get children to act as convincingly as you can portray it in animation, right? Yeah. Um, because children are just going to be acting like they're starving to death, and you can see it, right? Yeah. yeah. But here in the film, they can just portray it easily. Mm -hmm. So. So, having said all of that, um, I guess the reason that we're talking about this is because it is my contention, my conviction, that this is, I think, the greatest war movie ever made. Mm. And I have a few reasons for that, but let's turn to an authority, an expert on this subject, the film critic, the venerable, late deceased film critic Roger Ebert, who put this on his list of the best movies ever made and had this to say about it. You know, I've seen a lot of war films, and many of them are exciting or moving or dramatic or artistically effective, uh, and a few of them actually reach you at an emotional level and not just at the action level. Uh, I was amazed the first time I saw Grave of the Fireflies to find that I was actually moved just about to tears by this film. Uh, you know, I think people who, who don't know what to expect are going to be very surprised by it. So this film... Uh, has an emotional breath to it uh, involving war and the kind of results of war and two victims of war uh, that is astonishing. Um, I met a group of um, Asian filmmakers from Vietnam at the Hawaii Film Festival about 15 years ago who had come over with a group of their films about the war showing the other side of that war. And I noticed that in none of their films did they ever mention the United States. It was just the enemy. And I asked them about that, and they said, well, we've had so many enemies over the years. We've had China, we've had the French, the Americans, who knows who's next. Um, the way we look at it is, you know, we are we, and then anyone who comes to attack us is the enemy, but their um, identity is not so important as the fact that they are our enemy. I think maybe this movie is saying that firebombing um, is not a very precise way of going after the enemy. It's a way to destroy morale. It's a way to break down a nation's will to resist. But at the same time, uh, are we really thinking about people like this little brother and his even smaller sister when we drop those bombs? Or are we managing to objectify the Japanese as an evil race who deserve to have this happen to them? So that's Roger Ebert, and in fact, I was influenced, I think, by his, um, his interpretation of this film the first time I watched it, and I read his, his review of it, and I, I th the more I thought about it, the more I realized this is the perfect war movie, because every, think of every war movie you've ever seen. Every war movie is about, I mean, at best, if it's playing on emotion, on the emotional level, the only emotion it's tapping into is it's you know the band of brothers and yeah, you know yeah, one soldiers, of your the, the military yeah, side one of your yeah. men in arms dies in battle or whatever yeah. oh fuck you I'm gonna get you you know yeah, that kind yeah. of uh, that's the emotional level of of war movies and uh, they can be I mean uh, there are some excellent war movies that have uh, dealt with you know the, the the realities of war in different ways and I don't want to downplay Full that. Metal Jacket things like that yeah I prefer Paths of Glory huh? have you seen that one no, I have excellent not. excellent movie. Um, but yeah, I mean, all sorts of good movies. But this one is the only one I can think of that A, deals with it completely, 100% at the level of the civilians yes. who are living through this war, which is something that most movies don't even mention, don't even think about. Yeah. Um, this one is completely about that. And it's interesting for being a Westerner watching this movie to see the war from the exact opposite side that we see in every war movie, which is, in this movie, 
it's the Americans who are the faceless, nameless enemy other that you don't ever see. I mean, all they are is just planes flying overhead. And, uh, and there's no discussion of that. It's 100% about the Japanese and their perspective on this, which I think is also, I mean, for obviously for a Westerner who's seen all these Western war movies about the Allied side, it's really interesting to see that perspective. So for that, I think this was extremely interesting for me and probably the most effective war movie. But interestingly, Takahata, the director, specifically said in 1988, this is not an anti-war film in absolutely no way. I don't have the exact quote, but he was very certain about that. And I find that interesting, yeah, it's quite a while, yeah. but I don't know why he said that. I only seen that quote. I don't know the context of what he was saying. Maybe, I mean, maybe the, the context is he, he wasn't trying to, as you said, there was the, the, the idea of the Americans, it really is so, so much in the background. And I think they're only mentioned maybe once or twice in the first scene and maybe <laughs> later on in the Towards the, towards the latter half of the movie, but and and maybe that's why you know he, he's not trying to particularly cast any particular blame on the Americans and or, or, or the Japanese. But yeah, you're right. I mean, that's the thing that stood out to me. I said, I said, this is absolutely a, a an anti-war film. You know, a, a, I can't wrap my head around how they would not see it that way. Um, I mean, I mean, that's one of the things you pointed out is just that this was also the first time that yeah, it really hones in on children. The ch a child's experience of what war is like not not generals not not governments not soldiers but but children and and it's so raw and it's so brutal and so visceral and brutal and there's a scene i noticed where uh saita and tetsuko they i think the, the first wave of the initial fire bombings and they've lost their mother and uh they huddle in like a, a sewer next to a lake or something and you can really see the, for the first time the uh the fear, the fear in, in Setsuko's eyes, the, the, he's shivering and shaking, and I mean, and that's when you can really say, I mean, that's for me, I was like, oh, this is where the tone of this movie is going to be really going quite quickly, um, and it's, it never stops, yeah. it never really stops. Yeah, it opens with his death. It op yeah, I mean, that's the, I mean, the, fir the first line of the movie sets the theme for the right. whole, for the whole, for the rest of the film, so, um, where sadly, yeah, our main protagonist is left to die at San Lamia Station, which is, uh, uh, for those who don't know, Sandomir Station is in Kobe, so I mean, this is where this whole film. I've been is based. there many times. Yes, and uh, we'll, we'll be going back there for the third time in a few weeks. So uh, I might even—I don't know—might even go to Sandomir Station just to—I yeah, don't know if there's anything. Step over the uh, shadow of yeah, Seda's uh, yeah. corpse, um, and you should buy some Sakuma cough, uh, candy drops. Yeah, oh, true. I have a can I'll, at home that I bought after watching <laughs> this movie. Yeah, I'll give, um, to, I'll give them to my nephews. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. Well, let's go through some of this then. So it does start obviously with that scene where he dies in the station but then it quickly travels back to I believe March 1945 is where this opens with the firebombing of Kobe and again it's interesting for me because I've seen photos and photos are widely available of, of for example even the aftermath of the firebombing of Kobe you can actually see some of the pictures and of course they're kind of these aerial wide panoramic shots where you see just this vast expanse of kind of smoking buildings and bombed out hubbles and um, and this movie, I mean, makes it makes you really realize that every drop of every one of those bombs is affecting people's lives in a way that you can never see from a photograph like that, right? Yeah. It's uh, so again, it's extremely effective that way. So we start right in the middle of this firebombing, the splitting up of the family, and it goes from there to them going to the school. 
Yes. Which is like a temporary shelter, shelter yeah. right? And then they make their way to the ants? That's right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so it, it's in, I mean, the first thing I noticed from the initial firebombings there is this strange, this, this strange calmness over the mother, mother figure. You know, she seems kind of placid about it. And it, it got me thinking, you know, was this, is this due to Japan, you know, after years of war, you know, becoming, the, the civilians becoming almost desensitized a little bit to the, to the actual, the, the real dangers of what's going on. So, and maybe in the end, that's what got her, uh, that's what was her, her downfall, the reason of her death, you know, so. Uh, but also, I mean, that's, this is something I wanted to ask you too, is that also something underlying in Japanese culture as well? Um, not so much in wartime, but just, you know, not to, not to worry too much, just to keep going head fast, yeah. head, head strong, you know, whatever we're told to do, we will do, and uh, yeah. I know that's, that's something interesting. Right, but, I yeah. think that's, that is part of, obviously, Japanese culture. It's part of what was the imperial conditioning. But it survives today, obviously, and I think it is just kind of you know head down, do what you got to do, kind of thing. But I also read that as a parent trying to reassure their children. Of course, right? yeah. 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 So there's a multiple different yeah. factors playing into that. But yeah, you're right. Very, very calm, very placid. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah, and then off to the temporary shelter where uh, yeah they lose they lose sight of their mother, and that's where unfortunately that uh, Saita finds out that. Say Saita? Saita, Saita. Saita finds, out, finds out that yeah, his mother has been hit and uh, is in pretty much a uh, uh, unwinnable situation yeah. in terms of her life and yeah. uh, pretty much dead. It's pretty much dead. Pretty much dead. Yeah. So it's um, it's brutal. But then you can see very quickly Saita taking instantly taking the role of the, the parent figure over, over Setsuko, and it's something that I notice he he does grapple with up until the very end of the film. Um, him being, a, I'm not sure how old is he meant to be in the in the film. Kind of, uh, he is uh, third grade of junior high, which would be, a, um, I think, he's 14. Yeah. So there's a struggle between him being the the only source of uh, care for, for Setsuko now, but also his own fears and his own uh, battle with also still being a kid, you know, and wanting to play. And there's that scene where. Uh, Setsuko is really pining for his mother's care and wants to see her, but obviously she can't. Um, and then you'll see Saito spinning around on the on the monkey bars or whatever, trying trying mm, to cheer him up, and then right, right, sunsets. Right. It's a really powerful. Yeah, that was a, that was an interesting scene, wasn't mm, it? Yeah. Because um, Setsuko is is she crying or crying or kind of sulking yeah, or having sulking, a tantrum? Right. Kind of, yeah, yeah. And he's just like, hey, look at me, I'm good at this, and he yeah. just keeps doing it. Keep and doing it. Yeah. As, as the sun sets, and in the background, you can still see the smoking ashes of the uh, of the town. So, yeah, it's um, and unfortunately, it it only it only continues to get worse from there on in. Yeah, yeah. that that's actually one of the happier parts. Yeah, of one of the happier parts. I mean, there, there is these little glimmers of hope yeah, in the movie, exactly. you know, where it, yeah. especially with the, uh, with, the, with the lollies and the tin, you know, mm-hmm. they, they're a constant source of uh, happiness for, for Setsuko. And uh, it's it really, unfortunately, it, you kind of know where it's going. Where it's going. And, and, and when that tin runs out later in the movie, yeah. unfortunately, it's, uh, yeah. So there's these, little, there's these little signs of glimmer and hope and, you know, and this this effort of them trying to at least achieve some kind of normality in this right. horrific situation but it but it's frustrated at every turn yes. and mostly by the other adults the adults around yeah. them, the people who you would think would be the people who would care for these children who clearly do not and so that brings us to the ant who mm. obviously is i mean kind of the crux of the story in a way yeah. um she could have saved their lives and she didn't mm. 
there's a lot of different things to say about that. But first, let's read kind of what the ant is experiencing here. Because I, I mean, I don't know. I think my first impression of the movie, the first time I watched it, I just kind of watched the movie and I thought, you know, it's kind of like a, you get that kind of Disney wicked stepmother kind of thing where it's just, just an adult who's just evil and is kind of the driver for the plot. But the second time watching it, I got a completely different reading of this because I, I mean, I really do understand the aunt and her character and her motivations. She's trying to take care of her own family with the little food that they have, and they're doing what they can for the war effort and all this. And so she sees these children. She cares about them. She takes them in. She cares. She seems sad for them, but it quickly turns to you're just mooching off of us. And I guess I understand that, but it's still... Um, one of the ways to read that is that that is a very interesting sign of exactly what it would or will, hopefully would not, be like in a, f- in a war scenario like you know World War II or something, where the societal pressure to be part of that war effort is so complete, so total, that it could literally mean life or death. You can be castigated from society so completely if you do not take part in that war effort, even, you will die. Even by your own family, yeah. 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 Even by your own family. Yeah, that, that's, it's something that uh, I tend to think at the start, she is relatively happy and able to look after them, but mainly I think because uh, Saito uh, ends up selling his mother's kimonos, right. uh, and then they get a nice, nice big bag of rice, which will see them through for a few weeks, and they get a a jar of it, like a, a quarter of the thing, even though they were his, uh, and his mother's kimonos. And there is quite a, a heart-wrenching scene where uh, Setsuko realises that he is selling uh, his mother's kimonos and these are the last pr- probably uh, memories or physical, uh, 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 physical things that they have left of their mother. And you know, there's, there's this scene where he's just crying and crying and screaming for it. Not, not to sell it, please don't sell it, it's my mother's. You know, it's really, really hard. But there's, 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 no, there's no compassion, there's very little emotion coming from the art. You know, this is wartime. You know, and very quickly that uh, relationship disintegrates and she constantly r- reminds both a 14-year-old and a 3- or 4-year-old that they're lazy and useless and worthless because they're not, they're not pulling their weight for, for, the, for the country, for the war effort, you know, whereas uh, the other relatives in her family are. So it, it really... And it, it's something that got me thinking... Um, a couple of years ago in, in my hometown in Australia, there was some, some pretty bad floods and our, our hometown was cut off for about a week or so. And this is obviously a strange or a, a completely different uh, analogy, but within a few days, people were starting to fight and bicker over because the, the supermarket shelves were empty because the trucks couldn't get through. And all of a sudden you, you see this, this visceral, this, uh, this survival, I don't want to call it survival instinct, but you know, it, if I can't have something, no one else can. And there, apparently there was this woman in this supermarket and there was only, there was three loaves of bread left on the shelves and she grabbed all three and there was people lining up for bread. And everyone said, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? You can't, you know, at least just have to take one. And apparently she rips open the other two bags and stomps on them and said, if I, I can't have all three of them, then none of you can have it. And it's this, this mindset that, that comes in when, uh, obviously, it'd be much more strenuous and much more severe in a wartime, in war zone, but when 
when things change and when things become a little much more difficult, the, instead of becoming more open and more compassionate and coming together and you know trying to reach some kind of uh, normality and some kind of understanding between each other, it goes the, the complete opposite right. way, you know. And I think for for me, that's it even more. Can go it can go the other way, and you know, it's how quickly we go from being civilized to every man for themselves. So, yeah. and you know, once again, it's even more reason to know your local, to know your neighbours, to talk to your neighbours, to know your local farmers, to you know, to start creating these valuable connections. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. civilization is three meals away from revolution. That's what they, as they yeah. say. So, yeah, no, and um, and you're right. I mean, this is an extremely vivid example of that of phenomenon, but. Um, yeah, and, and that's why it's so important to have the infrastructure set up before this type of calamity happens so that hopefully it's not people scrambling. But, but then you think of examples like, uh, like in Volos, Greece, where they set up that, uh, that exchange, the barter network, mm -hmm. um, to get around because no one had euros, so yeah. they're exchanging services and things. So people can come together in calamitous events to create something, but yeah. it's much harder to do so. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's uh, survival instinct. It's the reptilian brain, whatever it is, yeah. kicks in and people just go crazy. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so, so, yeah, so, yes. once, so, so once they're kicked out, but basically kicked out or, you know, they're, they're well, no they, longer... You see, that's the thing. They, they're not really they kicked out. Yeah. They choose to leave yes. in the end, which is interesting. And again, is another part of the story, which I hadn't really considered the first time I watched it, but the second time it really stuck out to me, that the entire Setsuko Seda dying thing could have been averted if Seda had simply sucked it up and gone home to yeah. the ant and apologized. Tried, yeah, and he, that's specifically said what, to him by that old the, farmer, farmer in the field. Yeah. Right, yeah. You know, just go and apologize, and you're like, oh, you'll go ask someone else. Yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, that's interesting. That's really interesting. That's an extremely important part of the story, but it's never followed up on, right? Yeah. It's never, like, that's never seems to be like that's the point of the story. Yeah. <laughs> Although, it, maybe it is the more you reflect on it, yeah. but it's not, it's not, it doesn't seem like that's the driving part of the story. I mean, I guess there's, I mean, with the writers and directors, I mean, what would have happened if they had, if he had have apologized and gone back to the house, they just... Well, um, yeah. And now, this is interesting. Okay, I guess I'll bring this up now. So I was just watching a review on YouTube by Anime Abandon, who didn't like the movie. Okay. And uh, his reasoning for it, well, there's a, a, so, several things that go into this, but part of it is because Setsuko and Seda are not characters, per se. They're not fleshed out characters that you care about them, it's just these are two children dying, mm. and you care about children. two children dying, yeah. as you would sort of watching that any two children. They're interchangeable in that respect. And so he made the point that, well, I'm not sure if he makes this point specifically, but it's kind of what I got the gist of it, is that Seta, if he had, after Setsuko died maybe, had to go back to the ant and apologize, or come to some sort of realization about his guilt and what he had done, as happened in the real life story to obviously the, the man who ended up writing the novel who had this incredible guilt about having survived and his sister dying. That could have been an extremely powerful moment to develop Seda as a character, as a human mm. being. But that loses kind of just the, just the, the, the horror and pathos of, of the ending of the movie as, yeah. as the way it is. And the point, this is the interesting point that Anime Abandon was making, was that this movie was released in 1988 um, at a time when Japanese youth delinquency and, and juvenile arrests and things of that nature were spiking. 
throughout the 1980s, there was a huge spike in juvenile crime, and there was a big kind of moral panic that was going on about this. And it's kind of, I'm not sure if this was specifically stated by anyone involved with the production of this, but Anime Abandon was making the point that this movie was really, it was specifically targeted at the younger generation, at teenagers, i.e. the people who were at that time part of this moral panic that was going on. And he's kind of making the point that this is all, this movie is really about manipulating those children. Look, this is what happens when you disobey your elders. And you better appreciate what you have because, you know, your, your elders didn't have that when they were growing up and that kind of thing. Mm. So it's kind of like a moral panic type of movie in that respect. And when you put it in that, that term, it is, I suppose, I mean, it does make sense from that perspective because these aren't really characters that go through any development. They're just, you know, sad creatures that you feel sorry for and then they die. And it really does, this movie does have that effect on you of making you kind of obviously think about what you take for granted and I remember for years after watching this movie I would think about just having rice to go with dinner and you know this is not something that I should be taking for granted this is something that is I mean people have died to starve to death through you know lack of this this simple basic substance and and here I am complaining oh rice plain rice so how boring right I mean and so it does make you think that but the point is, maybe it was all, manip- all part of the manipulation to make you think about that. And in that societal context of what was happening in the 1980s, especially when that was the peak of the bubble and yeah. the craziness of the Japanese economy at that yeah. time. Yeah, it's, it's, that's an interesting, interesting way to look at it, isn't it? Just, just getting back to with Saito and his pride and, and not, not going back to the ends, I, I do wonder, there's this, there's this uh, mythical father figure his, in, in the, throughout the movie of Saito and Sasuke's father who's in the Japanese Imperial Navy and uh, you don't ever see him or hear him speak, there's only photos and I think there's a, a, a flashback of the, of the ship sending off and I do wonder if that has any effect, was the main reason behind Saito not, you know, he, he's, the, he's the father figure now, he has to stand up and he, for whatever reason he thinks he's at a, a dead end at his aunt's place and he's sick of being told told that he's worthless and useless and he can do it himself and everything and I wonder if that kind of militaristic uh, ideology is from his father has come through because there is quite a few flashbacks of like photos in, in the cherry blossom season with the family and everything and, and uh, there's still obviously quite a lot of uh, pride and, and, uh, and, and reverence towards his father even though I, th- I think even by at the time of the the start of the of the actual bombings I'm sure the Japanese navy was probably already yeah. well and truly on its way to being destroyed. So, yeah, yeah. but there was no there was no word. Yeah, actually, that's an interesting part of the movie too, because the the father really is this kind of revered figure that's kind of mythical almost. Yeah. And um, you you would think, perhaps, by the logic of most kind of a, if it was a Western kind of anti-war movie, you would think at some point maybe Seda would become resentful of his father, or you know he abandoned me kind of thing, or oh why did he have to go off to this stupid war kind of thing? But yeah, there is it, none it, of that. Never, it never takes no, that turn. No, never. So it really, I guess, in that respect, it isn't kind of the obvious anti-war movie that it could have been. Um, it, there's never an attempt to demonize the people who are involved in this war. Because again, it's completely told from the perspective of the children. Yeah. Which again, I think was part of what, was, what Takahata, the director, was talking about. The part of what's appealed to him about this story is that it is this ninth grader, it's about children. And he made the point that in war movies, it's always about these kind of nearly mythical soldier hero figures 
that the audience generally, especially children, could never relate to because they, they just think of them as these mythical people doing these, you know, brave, heroic things. And so it's not really about them. And that's what appealed to him about the story. It's about the children and they could relate to the experience. Mm. But I guess part of that is that, again, from the children's perspective, they never really question the received reality of the war. They don't even question what it's about. It's just the enemy. It's just the enemy. It's just the war. I, I mean, the only, the, the, obviously, the only change is that when Saito finds out that his father is, in fact, has been killed, and the whole Japanese navy is at the bottom of the, of the ocean, and um, you know, there's this moment of, and this was weeks ago, and he had no idea. You know, the lines of communication, obviously, because they were living in this abandoned shelter or mine or whatever it is, which, which is where they go to after they uh, after they leave the aunt's place. Um, so that's that's interesting as well. That you know, there's no, there's there's this there's this shock, and I think that's where Saito really almost starts to lose hope a little bit, you know, he, he, that, that yeah. really gets to him once he, he, he's, throughout the whole movie he's waiting to receive letters and some kind of contact from his father and then when he finds out that he's been killed it's uh, too much of a devastating blow and once again it just shows you that, you know, there's, now these, now these kids are orphans, you know, and uh, so trying to, struggling to survive in a country that is, you know, at, at the time and it's something that um, I wanted to talk about as well as, you know the fact that Japan was even at that time. And one thing that's interesting to me is that the the there is no mention of the bombings of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This is solely about the fire bombings, which is interesting. And already you can see that even just in this small world that Grave of the Fireflies is is taken from, Japan was really on its knees. You know, and it's something that you you um, went in had an in-depth conversation with with uh, John LaForge a few a few months ago around the last anniversary of. Um, the, the, the A-bombings that, you know, was there really a need for it? I mean, and in my opinion, this movie just is, is another layer and another factor showing that, that this whole justification of the A-bombings because of Pearl Harbor or whatever really was, it's really kind of ludicrous. But there is that line where the, uh, the uncle says something like, you know, now we're, we're preparing for the invasion or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Yeah. I mean, it's, the sense was that they would have fought to the last man. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, given Japanese tenacity if they had been ordered to. I'm sure they would have, yeah. You know. yeah. So I guess, the, I mean, that argument still will continue to rage. But it is important that this doesn't even mention the, the bombing, the A-bombing, at all. It's not even mentioned. No. It, it's about the fire bombings, yeah. which is such a huge part of that last stage of the war and one really? that we almost never think about because it was probably... I mean, as disgusting and atrocious and horrific as the war crimes of the A-bombing and, and uh, Nagasaki was, it's, it's almost nothing compared to the fire bombings, which killed many, many more people um, in excruciatingly grotesque ways and, and displaced and wounded many more and displaced many, many more into situations like the one in this movie. And uh, it's something that, again, to get a handle on what that means and what that actually was as an experience is difficult to do. Um, except through movies like this one, or if we start to put it into terms that the audience would understand. And in fact, this was something that was done really well in Errol Morse's documentary, where he was interviewing Richard McNamara, the Secretary of Defense under Kennedy, who was talking about the firebombings um, of Japan as the war crimes that they were. And he was talking about Curtis LeMay, who was the insane general who came up with the idea and implemented the bombings. And I just want to play a little clip of that part of the documentary where they talk about that and bring it back to the level of what it means in, in terms of the average person watching the documentary. 
The choice of incendiary bombs, where did that come from? I think the, the, the issue is not so much incendiary bombs. I think the issue is, in order to win a war, should you kill 100,000 people in one night by firebombing or any other way? LeMay's answer would be clearly yes. McNamara, do you mean to say that instead of killing 100,000, burning to death 100,000 Japanese civilians in that one night, we should have burned to death a lesser number or none, and then had our soldiers cross the beaches in Tokyo and been slaughtered in the tens of thousands? Is that what you're proposing? Is that moral? Is that wise? Why was it necessary to drop the nuclear bomb if LeMay was burning up Japan? And he went on from, from Tokyo to firebomb other cities. 58% of Yokohama, Yokohama is roughly the size of Cleveland. 58% of Cleveland destroyed. Tokyo is roughly the size of New York. 51% of New York destroyed. 99% of the equivalent of Chattanooga, which was Toyama. 40% of the equivalent of Los Angeles, which was Nagoya. This was all done before the dropping of the nuclear bomb, which, by the way, was dropped by LeMay's command. Okay, so that's McNamara talking about the firebombings, which, again, is kind of the... Uh, almost the the forgotten part uh, in some ways of this war and of course there was similar the, the bombing of Dresden mm -hmm. I mean just horrific things that were done but of course they were done by the victors so yep. they're not war crimes um, and there will never be a Nuremberg for them yeah. um, but this brings me to a question I wanted to ask you which may seem really simplistic but what do the fireflies represent? <laughs> That's a it's a, uh, uh, to me, they represent hope. It's in one of my notes, and uh, it's when they're, in, they're inside the shelter, inside the mosquito nets, and you know, they've, they've caught all these beautiful glowing fireflies, and uh, for some reason, they, the fireflies die. I don't know why that is, maybe because they can't get out or something, but they, they, they slowly start dropping one by one, and uh, during the night, while uh, Setsuko is sleeping, I think Saito starts, you know, being a 14-year-old kid going through this, he starts, you know, he's fearful and afraid and wondering where his father is. And he, he goes over to give Setsuko a hug and Setsuko, leave me alone. And, or, and it's in that moment that I think Saito really understands that there's this, this isolation and, and this, this abandonment by, by everyone who he thought cared about him and Setsuko. And then just after that scene, you see the, the last kind of firefly slowly, slowly burn out. And it, it's really from that, from then on, it's when uh, Setsuko's nutrition and her, her health really starts to go down quite quickly. So I think that's, I don't know, I, I think that was the director's and writer's uh, way of saying that, yeah. you know, there's, there's no turning back now right. from this. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they're clearly hope, joy, life, yeah. and kind of that wonder and, and everything and yeah as it dies out obviously that's a portent for things to come but um, and, and in that respect I think they're the children themselves because yes. they die so quickly yes. and that kind of thing that, I think that's all quite explicit but the interesting part was there's a point at which they talk about one of the fire bombings they're talking about the flames going overhead and they're like they're just like the fireflies mm. and uh, you see the bombs dropping and it's just like the scenes of the fireflies flying around, yeah. you see that kind of... And then, and then there's also that other scene where uh, Setsuko is 
uh, she's collected all the fireflies and is burying them in a, mass, in a little mass grave. And then there's that quick flashback of, uh, of their mother being thrown into a mass yeah. grave as well, which is quite... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, so, I mean, there's multiple layers of yeah, things of, going on here. Of what they represent, yeah, you know, the... the Their the, death and life. Yeah, the, yeah, I guess it's trying to explain the fragility of life. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, very uh, powerfully so. Yeah. Again, I think there is something to the idea that this is a manipulative movie that's more meant at a modern audience than it is to talk necessarily about history. Mm. But regardless, it works exceptionally powerfully well. Um, if it is just a man manipulative movie, it does that very well. Mm. And if it is, even if it's not meant to talk about the history, I think it brings it to a type of vivacious life in front of you that you could never, again, I don't think you could ever do this live action. I don't think so. I will commit myself to watching the live action version, <laughs> yeah. but I almost don't want to ruin my experience of the animation. Speaking of which, did you watch the English dub or the Japanese um, original? I, the first time I watched it, I watched the English dub, and then um, on, the, on, the, on that flight over here, I watched the uh, Japanese, yeah. Japanese one. And I, I will say, you know, most anime purists will say the only way to watch Japanese animation is with Japanese and just read subtitles, you know, and I, I am starting to understand that now. I used yeah. to, oh, I want to read all the time and you know, blah, 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 but now there is a, I think, yeah, it's much more better to have the Japanese voice actors. Not that the English voice actors did a bad job with this movie, they did a great job, um, but uh, to have those. Me, me being a snob at heart, I've always been kind of like, oh, I don't want to watch the dub, I want to watch the Yeah. Movie. But I've, I, I, I've heard and I actually watched a little bit of the English dub um, but I've heard the main criticism is the voice of Setsuko mm -hmm. is just not realistic as a four-year-old. And having heard what I heard, it was sounded really atrociously yeah. Yeah. silly, yeah. actually. Which defeats, the, I think, the entire movie if yeah. you can't get into Setsuko's voice yeah. um, as a four-year-old. Yeah, I mean, and Setsuko's voice in the, in the Japanese version is... Ex you know, yeah. just, even just hearing the children play in the park yesterday, right, it's, right. it's exactly like that. You hear the, these cute things, you Nichan, yeah. it's, it's, it's those things that really, as you said, bring you into that environment amazingly well, considering it is, a, it is an animation, you know, yeah. it's those little, those little things. Uh, and, <laughs> speaking of little speak, children speaking running little around, children. yeah, sorry about that yeah. interruption, guys. And, and even, just some of the, even just some of the things that your son was doing yesterday, so strikingly similar, you know, yeah. so... Uh, yeah, very, again, yeah, very, very realistic in yeah. a lot of ways. All right, I think those are the main points I wanted to touch on, but are there any other specific things you wanted to bring up? Um, no, as I, was, I think we've kind of covered it. I mean, this is really just a, it's a movie that, you know, goes to the heart of it, of what happens to children during war. And it's something that so easily gets lost in our own, our own ideolo ideologies and also the ideologies that we get, you know, we get forced down or, or that we follow, you know. And, and, but there's also, I think there is this little glimmer of hope towards the end, just after uh, um, Setsuko is, cre is cremated and has passed away, obviously. Um, one of the farmers, or it is a, a, a man in the city that, um, that Saito is in, and he says, beautiful day in spite of it all, isn't it? And that's something that's very Japanese, I've found, and it, it's something I've, I have tried to, I've tried to have conversations with some Japanese people, you know, about what they think about Fukushima or the, the Japanese government or the earthquake and tsunami and everything, and nine times out of ten, the response I get is that we've, we've moved on, we're moving forward from that now, and that, I think, has both good and bad properties, yeah. bad sides to it, yeah, but it, it, yeah. it's interesting, and, and that, it was interesting to me that that was, so striking in the movie that yeah. despite the, the horror that has just gone on, mm. 
you can you can still look up at, at a beautiful day and be appreciative of that yeah. in spite of it's it all. It's also interesting to step back one layer from that and think of the Japanese animators and producers and directors making a scene in which that happens in a movie that's about this where they're reflecting on the past. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of layers to that. Yeah, um, yeah it is. Uh, that... It is a very interesting moment, isn't it? Because yeah. we as the audience obviously see it from Seda's perspective, like how could you possibly say that? Mm-hmm. But from his perspective, yeah, an awful lot of this one little tragedy has happened millions of times across yeah. the country. Time to move on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's an so, interesting perspective. So yeah, I mean, I hope, I hope this movie got you know people to really contemplate the ideas and the ideals behind war and, and what it and what it really means, and what it really means at the end of the day, you know, and what we're doing right now, going back into the Middle East, you know, and, and, and by we, of course, I mean Western armies and governments, of course. Um, but also, I hope this will change people's ideas of what animated movies can be, you know. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of Japanese animation, and, and you know, even my wife has kind of gotten on board with that now. There is something that can be explained in these movies that can't be done through live action, and there's definitely more... There's Hundreds and thousands of great anime titles that, for that over wide ranging genres as well. You know, yeah. so uh, TV shows, Absolutely movies. So. Um, yeah, don't uh, don't go in with preconceptions. Um, yeah. I hope this has busted them. I I think so too. I've seen so a few animes, and I think they are absolutely amazingly beautiful. Yeah. Um, and this is one of them. So. Absolutely. I hope it does break some preconceptions. And this has been an unrelentingly sad and serious conversation. So let's end on a happy note, or a funny note, anyway. So this movie came out in 1988. Um, It was... I'm not sure when Studio Ghibli was founded, but it was, I think, around that It would be in the 80s, I'm pretty sure, yes. And and so this was one of the two movies that... Or maybe there were more, but uh, two movies that everyone knows was released in 1988. The other one being Totoro, which Mm. is probably the most famous anime movie of all time. And uh, apparently, uh, when this was given a, a, its original theatrical release, it was a double bill of Grave of the Fireflies and Totoro. Oh, wow. <laughs> which I cannot imagine watching those two movies no. together like that. You could not get more different. I mean, oh, my God. It's kind of like Saving Private Ryan and Finding Nemo put together, isn't it? <laughs> Yes, exactly. Which one would you put first and which one would you put second? Are you going to hit him with the low blow first or the uppercut second? I'm not sure. Oh my God, I can't even imagine that. So apparently this was not much of a commercial hit at the time. Unsurprisingly, well maybe. But uh, I guess merchandise for uh, Totoro was more than enough to economically stabilize Studio Ghibli. It's still everywhere today in shops. Yeah, Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so, well, I guess it's time for us to, uh, to end this conversation and you can get back to exploring Japan. And uh, we were just noting the other day how everything here is just concrete everywhere and part of it is because of what we just saw in this movie with the, uh, the fire bombings burning up all of that traditional culture and, yeah, and the concrete monstrosities were erected. Yeah, that's just way. one final thing is that, uh, just like you said, unfortunately a lot of these older... Older villages and stuff were, were lost in the Second World War, but there still is gems out there. And, and, and my wife and I have been lucky enough to, to, to visit a couple of those places. And if you ever do come to Japan, which I hope some of the audience will come out and visit Japan, it's a beautiful country with beautiful people and food and everything to go with it. Um, 
but do go to those smaller rural villages and, and get into the nature. I think that's where the, yeah. the, real, the real heart of the country lies, yeah. like, like in any country, yeah, I guess, you know. You know so. the, cities, the cities are the bustling nervous system, but, right. but the heart... Tokyo could be in any country, but... Pretty much, yeah. But the rural places are Yeah, unique. absolutely. Yeah, it's a beautiful well, country yeah. anyways. Well, thanks for having me, mate. It's been Thank you so much for being here, Brock. I appreciate Always. it. Thanks, mate. Cheers. All right, friends, James here, all by my lonesome back in the palatial broadcasting studios of CorbettReport.com, by which I mean the other room of our two-bedroom apartment. And that, of course, was Brock West of APPerspective.net. I think I forgot to mention his website there in our conversation, but at any rate, it certainly will be included in the show notes uh, at CorbettReport.com, so please do go there and follow it through to his excellent blog on geopolitics in the Asia-Pacific region, which of course is on a slight hiatus at the moment, as is our monthly series on the Asia-Pacific perspective, as he is here in Japan traveling around with his wife, enjoying the sights and scenery, and hopefully heading back to Australia safe and sound very soon so that he can help us cover the, well, what is bound to be the madness of the upcoming G20 in Brisbane. I'm not looking forward to that for a number of reasons, but it will be, well, it will be interesting to talk to him about that and the fallout from that. But let's get straight into the mailbag from this month's edition of the podcast, or more accurately, the comments and feedback from last month. But before we do so, there is some music playing in the background. For those of you who are wondering, this is courtesy of Yoko, who wrote in an email in which Yoko notes, quote, a good friend of mine got such a strong impression from Grave of the Fireflies. You know, that light degree of psychological damage most of us get after finishing this film. Well, in his case, it never went away, ever. So he and his band decided to sample the audio track of the film and write a song that, that was included on their debut album called Yui. The band is called Childs, yes, a misspelling of children, and the song Mariana. And so thank you very much for including that, Yoko. I really do uh, enjoy this tune, so I'm happy to pass it on to the audience. And of course, you can find the link in the show notes if you want to listen to the entire song without my voice rambling all over it. And uh, we will also... Uh, just note from that very interesting email that I got in from Yoko in advance of this conversation. Yoko also notes that uh, that a decision was made to go ahead and finally have children after listening to my overpopulation myth episode, which is just about the best podcast feedback I could ever receive. So once again, thank you very much for writing in, Yoko. I do appreciate that, as I do appreciate all the emails that do come in through the contact form on CorbettReport.com. Also, with regards to last month's conversation on Contagion, which we conducted with Tim Kilkenny of Revelations Radio News, we had a few comments in on CorbettReport.com itself from the subscribers of Corbett Report, including a very detailed and thorough comment from Fosca, which I would encourage you all to go and read. Uh, a lot of things to chew on in there, a couple of which I'll note. First of all, the uh, uh, Fosca notes, the CDC has started a strange blog on zombie apocalypse in order to raise public awareness of emergency preparedness. And uh, Fosca notes that this and the 2013 movie World War Z are much more of predictive programming than Contagion, I think. So I, uh, I certainly do hope people will check out that zombie apocalypse meme if they haven't yet done so, because obviously, uh, I, for me, I'm somewhat detached, thankfully, from the propaganda Hollywood uh, cultural programming mill, but I, I see it at least from arm's length enough to know that there has been a very interesting and marked increase in zombies as a cultural part of the cultural zeitgeist recently, so... There's, I think, a lot to be said about that, and perhaps we will have to talk about that in a future edition of this podcast. 
But uh, Simon replies to Fosca's comment, just a note about the 1918 flu pandemic, which Fosca talks about, and noting the role of aspirin in that pandemic, which is an interesting one, and I'll let you go and parse that from uh, the uh, comment that Simon leaves there yourself. Uh, Fosca also makes a comment asking whether people like Jeff Skoll can simply make, uh, can simply do good things, can simply make media worth watching, like uh, some of the films in Participant Media's roster of films. And this is, of course, something that uh, Tim and I talked about in that episode of FLNWO, where we talked about participant media and its interesting role in admittedly creating works of propaganda, and it's admittedly founded and and sponsored by this billionaire who's in the quote-unquote good club with Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and all these other so-called philanthropist billionaires. And we were obviously quite cynical about participant media and, you know, the uh, real motivations behind it. But having said that, of course, we did note that participant media has done some genuinely good films that genuinely are worth watching, not even from a deconstructing the propaganda type uh, perspective, but from actually watching the movies themselves. Uh, Things like The Internet's Own Boy, which I haven't watched yet, but which Tim assures me is a very interesting film. So there are some interesting films in there that I I wouldn't ever recommend throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I'm sure participant media has engaged in some some very valuable films. propaganda, quote-unquote, but it doesn't mean that there aren't some nefarious uh, ideas that are being propagated by this billionaire club, and, uh, well, obviously one of them that comes to mind is Al Gore and the uh, inconvenient truth uh, uh, garbage that was shoved down the public's throats a decade ago, and in, on that note, uh, Eric Pachenik replies with a comment on, on the Corbett Report post there, Jeff Skoll in his own words, and it's a link to the transcript of Jeff Skoll's TED Talk, where he talks, for example, about Uh, seeing Al Gore's presentation and being blown away by it and deciding then and there that it had to be turned into a film. And then he goes on to brag that the uh, inconvenient truth is now mandatory viewing in schools in England and Scotland and most of Scandinavia, and we've sent 50,000 DVDs to high school teachers in the US. It's really changed the debate on global warming. And then he goes on to compare Al Gore to the George Clooney of global warming. So <laughs> that's an interesting little comparison for a number of different reasons, and I'll leave that uh, you guys to parse that one. <laughs> but anyway, uh, again, I think it's definitely not so straightforward that we should dismiss anything that participant media produces, but as always, we have to have our thinking cap on and realize when we're being sold a lie. And on that note, uh, we did get a, another comment on that blog post from Chris Weston, who writes, As a record producer, I am well aware of Abu Dhabi Media. They part-own the company Vivo with Google and the utter scum that own my back catalog, Universal Music Group. And he wrote a blog about that, so you can follow that link if you're interested in reading about that story. But he says, This deal is evident when you go on YouTube. Try browsing music videos on YouTube without Vivo being shoved in your face. But it goes further than that. Take the song Stay With Me. The title has been used by about 50 different artists, including The Faces and Al Green. But have a look at a Google search for that title. Seven pages of results from some crappy unknown Vivo artist before one mention of Al Green or Rod Stewart. So it's clear these companies are all in bed together, altering your perception of things on their websites to earn themselves cash. You thought Google ordered results on popularity, didn't you? Nah, they just do whatever makes themselves the most money. To hear participant media are doing a deal with Abu Dhabi media makes me highly suspicious. Not that I wasn't already, but it went up a notch, as you can see from this small example. These people are not to be trusted. 
So thank you for that comment, Chris. I think that's a very good way of, of helping us to see that there are things that go on behind the scenes that we often wouldn't even consciously register or think about that are being subtly manipulated as a result of this confluence of money and power that is enabled by these mega corporations and the mega billionaires behind them getting in bed together and altering the web as we know it in ways that are subtle and uh, quite insidious. So that is a good way of putting in a microcosm the macrocosmic picture of the problems that can result from this type of power collusion so something something to cogitate on so i, I, I once again i do want to thank everyone who is commenting on corbettreport.com on the flnwo series and every other post on corbett report all the videos and podcasts and episodes uh your input is obviously appreciated and i i i'm very again very very happy with the the type of discourse and conversation and back and forth that's going on in the comment section there so please keep it up and if you are a subscriber a member of corbettreport.com and you have not received your login details or you're having problems logging in please do get in touch that is what i'm here for i'm happy to help you because for some reason or other i realize my web server is being blocked as some sort of spam by a number of email providers so some people are having problems getting some of the auto emails with their login details etc so anyway just Get in touch with me if you're having those types of problems. And I think that's going to do it for this month. So I'm very much looking forward to talking to you once again next month, obviously the third Monday of next month, where we're going to be talking about da, 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 Torah, Torah, Torah. So I will, of course, as always, include a link in the show notes so you can go and follow that and get prepared for next month's conversation. And until then, I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again real soon.